0: Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Anarchy in the HE with me, Roger Kerry. This month's guest is Dr Tim Ingold. Emeritus Professor of the University of Aberdeen and a British anthropologist and a world-renowned anthropologist at that with an outstanding career spanning Cambridge, Helsinki, Manchester and, of course, as I said, Aberdeen. Um, Now, Tim is somewhat of a polymath. Uh, He knows a lot about lots of things and it's through his work in education that I came to know about him and it's thanks to um, a good colleague of mine, Laura Rathbone, who pointed me in his direction. And I read his book, um, Anthropology and as Education, and was curious about his views on the world of higher education. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, let's leave it no longer. Here is um, Tim Ingold.
1: Well, yes, uh, okay. Hello, I'm 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 uh, Tim Ingold. I'm uh, officially. Emeritus Professor of Social Anthropology at the University of Aberdeen, which means that I retired three years ago in 2018, which makes me really now, I suppose, a a kind of independent scholar enjoying the luxury of retirement when I can uh, read, write and uh, study as much as I want the things I actually always wanted to study rather than waste all my time on university administration and Tyson grant proposals and Tyson things like that. So I'm on what I say is the best kind of research leave ever. That is, it's open-ended fully funded and has no reporting requirements. So I recommend it. Uh, But um, I was um, professor of social anthropology in um, Aberdeen from, I I, I started off in Manchester, spent 25 years in the Department of Social Anthropology there, moved to Aberdeen in 1999 to set up a new programme and ultimately Department in Anthropology and um, stayed there until 2018 when I retired. Um, And my interests are all over the place.
0: (laughs) Well, on that note, of course, the reason uh, you're a well renowned anthropologist, but my introduction to you was through education which is mm-hmm. one of of course mm-hmm. one of your interests as well and critically you you brought the idea of anthropology and education together and i guess that's what that's what i i'd like to talk about really that that idea mm-hmm. the, the core idea of of your your book anthropology and or um uh, sorry oh, yes. and as education um and uh, so yeah a bit of the sort of basic premise of, of that book and then I'm you know, I'm I'm curious about some of the ways we can translate some of those thoughts about yes. education from because
1: I'm addressing both an anthropological and an educational readership and on, on the anthropological and and up until recently. Uh, the disciplines of anthropology and education have had very little to do with one another. There's, there, there's been a sort of anthropology of education. I mean, anthropologists doing ethnographic studies in schools or universities, but it's been a, it's been a very minor uh, part of the discipline. And, and what I've been really trying to do is to persuade my colleagues in anthropology that anthropology is fundamentally an educational endeavour. Uh, they, uh, they, most of my colleagues think of anthropology as being basically ethnography, uh, going to people, places, wherever, working with people, writing up how they live, the problems they encounter, ways they think, and so on. And, and I've been trying to argue that no, there's much more to anthropology than that, that really anthropology is a form of education. But then the challenge has been addressing educational readers. Um in what sense do we take this word education for anthropology to be an uh, educational project? And obviously, it's not the, um, the conventional sense of education as the transmission of authorized knowledge from people who know, know more to people know le- who know less. It is quite the opposite. The idea that I got from reading educational philosophers like Jan Maschelein and Gert Biester in particular that education is a process of leading one out into the world so that one can confront things in their presence as they are and learn from them. So it's a question of, of thinking of the world itself as our university where we study and thinking of anthropology as a way of, of studying in the world with people, with things, with everything that we encounter. So that, that's in a way that's, that that's behind it. So, it's meant rethinking both the priorities of anthropology, thinking of anthropology as an educational endeavour, and also rethinking education um, away from the standard transmission model.
0: So, that's one of the first things that struck me that education. Uh, I mean the, the, there's lots of sort of quotes from from your work there's more to education than teaching and learning and transmission mm. um is not is not where we're at. and you talk about three well there's there's a couple of things really that that I'm interested one is, is the three terms that you sort of sketch out at the start of that book which is a communication transmission and environment and and also I mean you've mentioned the philosophers there but of course there's John Dewey as well which is central to 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 all of this but there's this thing about dewey's interpretation of of transmission and communication yeah. which sort of contrast a little bit with what you're saying well that's, so that's right because well. i think
1: it's a source of potential confusion i mean dewey is the inspiration for the book uh, partly because it started off as a set of so-called dewey lectures which were given in honor of john dewey so i i was reading up on his work as i was preparing the lectures and subsequently the book. But the thing is that, that John Dewey, in uh, I'm thinking particularly of, of, of the book um, Democracy and Education, says that education is fundamentally about communication. And, but then when you read it, you find that what he's meaning by communication is something quite different from what most of us would understand by communication today. After all, he was writing a hundred years ago, uh, in in days when you know the telegraph had only just arrived, or had it arrived? I think just, and we had we didn't have radio, we didn't have TV, we didn't have the internet, any of these things, or, or the wireless. And 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 so you know, subsequent to cybernetics and information theory and all those developments that happened during and after the Second World War, we we now tend to think of communication as the transmission of information from a source to a recipient, as in wireless communication, for example, and that's exactly not what Dewey meant. What what he meant was something closer to communion, or what he said called—I like this phrase very much—the establishment of like-mindedness. So suppose that you and I are having a conversation, and you come from your background, and I come from mine. You know, maybe there's a little bit of overlap somewhere, um, but but anyway, we, we come from quite different experiences we've, we've had different experiences of life and we meet and what happens is that we, we want to converse so I have to project my experience forward in imagination and you have to project yours so that we can find a place which is beyond where either of us were just now where we can begin to meet up and that is what Dewey meant by communication it meant because and 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 essentially that means that every participant has, in a sense, to go beyond where they are now, to imagine beyond where they are, to find a common place where they can begin to meet, and converse. And so I, I wanted to try and show how, um, how, how to well, to explain that meaning of communication, uh, to distinguish it very clearly from the transmission of ready-made bits of information as we might understand it now and and i used the word commoning um yeah. <laughs> as a as an alternative that might work better and actually resonates with a lot of other work that's going on on commoning and the commons at the moment uh, in other areas of the humanities
0: and just talking about the environment with that as as well so the, this idea about the variability with within an,
1: Environment. yes I mean Dewey's point was that um we we, we we each of us has our own voice um but we so but 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 we develop our own voice through conversation with others so it's by become by coming together in conversation or communication in his terms commoning in mind is by coming together that we actually differentiate ourselves from one another. So you imagine a conversation, you know, in which in which we join, but each of us joins with our own voice. And at the end of the conversation we're all transformed by it, by the experience of it. So my voice has moved on, your voice has moved on. Our voices have not merged, they've not simply joined us one voice. We we we've still um, developed our own particular voices but through that um, coming together, I think Dewey, did, did Dewey actually used the phrase or not, but but it's he talks about living together in difference, and that's really fundamentally um, what it's about. I wanted to show how how this togethering does not abolish difference, but produces it.
0: And th- and this might be a sort of oversimplistic, slightly misrepresentation of that, but I'm forever trying to link things into, to how, mm-hmm. how things happen. And one goal of education, I suppose, as it is, um, is, and again, again I'm thinking of my disciplines is to standardize everything. You know, the, the, the goal of yeah. ed- ed- education is to get everybody to the same level, to the same yeah. criteria, to the same standards, Uh, which seems to contrast directly with... with, Uh, Absolutely.
1: This idea of common standards um, connects with the the Enlightenment idea that education is about um, the advance of civilization through rational inquiry. And the thing about the voice of reason... Is that it's quite indifferent to whose voice it actually is. I <laughs> mean, if 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 you've got the right answer to a problem, it doesn't matter who says it. You know, the answer is just the same. Uh, so, so the, the, this appeal to to the work of reason uh, abolishes the, the 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 voices of particular people, and it abolishes those differences of experience that everybody brings to the process and 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 what i want and what dewey wanted too was just the contrary to put the emphasis on experience and the the point being that if you're having a conversation i mean what can you possibly converse about if everybody thinks the same thing if everybody has exactly the same view you know if there's one right answer which is which everybody is supposed to arrive at then what is there to have a conversation about Uh, but, but the reason why conversations are so productive is precisely because everybody who joins them can bring in something different, that they have some experience of their own to contribute, to bring to the table, which other people are eager to hear about, and they in turn. And that way the process can has a momentum, it can carry on, rather than reaching the dead end <clears throat> of the right answer.
0: Hmm. And... Uh- Perhaps we won't go there yet, but I'd like to come back to this in a few minutes, if if we can, to see how some of this might play out in in the you know in the real world of education mm. and, and the tools we use use now. Um, but but before we do that, there's some more really interesting stuff that um that feeds on from this and just to pick up on a couple of the terms you use really and sort of expand them and explain a bit about that i mean there's this term leading life or um, that comes up quite a bit in your Mm. writing and conversations and you talk a bit about academic freedom and what that means and what it doesn't mean and things like that so do you mind going into to those Terms okay. a little bit. The thing about
1: leading, I mean, in, in a way that that simply simply comes from the etymology. That if we say that the word education comes from the Latin ex plus docere, ex means out, and docere means to lead. So to educate means to lead out. I mean, docere. That's where the education bit of education comes from. This idea of of leading, and the really interesting sort of philosophical question is, you know, we all know that we live our lives and that non-human animals do too, they live their lives. But is there something that makes leading life more than just living it? And if so, what is it? And um, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky philosophical problem, but, but uh, to my mind, that is the question of education. And that, that's to say, what, what is there more to leading life than living it? And the answer is whatever we think education to be. And that's why why it seems to me that education is, is so fun it's it's not just some something we do, it's it's fundamental to the human condition. Never mind about whether perhaps there's education amongst non-human animals, we we don't know, but but let's just concentrating on ourselves. Um we know that we do lead our lives, that this has something to do with the forward momentum of life, the sense that life is something that um that has duration, that carries on, that is informed by memory, but is also informed by aspiration, by things we yearn of, dream to do. They're all those things that make leading life in a sense more than just living it. And um, so that's what uh, that's what education is um is is to my mind fundamentally about. Uh, and again, following Dewey, it means that education is devoted to what you call the continuity of life, who you might say using a modern word sustainability, but not necessarily about progress and this is this is a really crucial thing that I think we've reached a juncture now when we suddenly realized uh, as, with, with the with the you know the 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 crisis the ecological crisis in the in, in the planet we've realized that Uh, progress and sustainability are not actually compatible Uh, and if we want to have a world that will carry on then actually we have to choose sustainability rather than progress so we have to we have to put our emphasis on education as a way of securing the continuity of life rather than as a way of allowing each generation to advance progressively upon the shoulders of its predecessors which is the the enlightenment model that we've inherited for the past uh, two or three or for centuries, hmm. so that that's leading. What was the other word? Well, it you was it sorry? was this
0: idea of academic freedom or freedom, oh, freedom. from yes. within. Yeah. freedom from within. And, and where, where I want
1: to, to show that um, I, I do think freedom is a word that's been, been been hugely abused, and particularly when academics talk about academic freedom and they 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 think it's this right that they have to protect uh, for themselves, and that oh, I'm sorry about the phone in the background. <laughs> okay, let's stop now. Um, that um, I, I'm, I'm trying to argue that, that, that freedom is not a right to defend. It's not, it's not something we have. It's something we are. It's, it's existen- existential. And it refers to our, the possibility that we have to move on from where we are now. It's not to defend an established position, but actually to take the risk of um, the risk of, of what Master Lang will call exposure. Expositio, moving the risk of, of actually um, taking flight from where we are just now. Uh, so that means that there can be no freedom without responsibility because to do that we have to respond um, to others. Um, in a way, there's no freedom without necessity, that the two really go together. But, but that's a real freedom, a genuine freedom that, that lies in that possibility to move on in our lives. The, the false freedom is the possibility to choose between alternatives. That's, that's the freedom of the market. And it's not that that we're after, because the freedom of the market already implies that we have a whole lot of ends already set out that we're going to choose from. But real freedom means we don't have ends. We, we only have beginnings that's that's the way I'm thinking about it right
0: right and um, so that as part of education in, in you, you, your yours and Jew's interpretation of education is uh, I mean I, again I'm just trying to align this to, to sort of normal theories of education and things yeah. are we talking about education as something which has an emancipatory Value. Well,
1: well, yes and no. I mean, the, the the trouble with the idea of emancipation is that it is a well, it is an idea that's very much hooked up with Enlightenment humanism, with the idea that um, that, that that we are looking for something that will liberate human beings from the constraints of the natural world, um, that that will allow us to float freely. Above the material world, uh, uh, and that's not what it's about. Um, but it does clearly have a political dimension, um, and this is where it gets complicated because we, we have to admit that that academic freedom, in the way that it's conventionally understood. By universities in the academic world was actually bought at the expense of the enslavement of others. I mean, we, we, we're only really learning this now, uh, the extent to which those freedoms that we so celebrate, uh, the civilization that we've built, is actually been built on the backs of 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 of, of slavery, of uh, colonization, of land appropriation, of environmental destruction, and so on. So that's not a way. Ahead, so if we're going to use the word emancipation, it has to be taken away from those logics uh, which couple freedom with ins- the freedom of some with the enslavement of others, and a way that's the real difficulty that we're at with education at the moment, because because mainstream higher education in particular is geared entirely to the reproduction of a cosmopolitan elite and giving them all the freedoms whilst everybody else who doesn't do well drops out. And mm. um, 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 that's not a recipe mm. for sustainability.
0: Um, th- thank you for that, Tim. I, d- I just want to, purely because of time, and I want to cherry pick as many things that mm. I'm interested in as, as possible. So if just jumping onto, uh, uh, and again, I think this is... Um, was, this was attractive because of your musical background as as well, but you, um, the um, major minor yeah. thing, ed, education in a minor key, mm. I, I think was one, uh, um, one of the chapter, the basis of one of the chapter. And I found that really sort of I- intriguing. Again, and you talk about strong and weak education and then that commoning comes in here again mm. with the un- undercommoning. Mm. Um, So do you mind explaining a bit about what you mean by that major and minor? minor Well,
1: I should first sort of uh, acknowledge my sources um, (laughs) in the sense that the idea of education in the minor key came from a book by a philosopher, Erin Manning, which is called The Minor Gesture, um, which I found tremendously inspirational, actually, uh, for my own thinking. And, And Manning, in turn, has taken this idiom the minor major distinction from the work of uh, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari so it's in there uh, where they talk sometimes just occasionally about major science and minor science so so it has its sort of genealogy from there that's, that, that's, that's where it comes from um, but it also has a certain resonance for me I think the musical resonance is very appropriate in that in music you know the major stands for uh, a, a a positive feeling of progress you <laughs> know you're actually advancing towards the end of this piece and you're going to end with a bomb and it's all done and 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 the minor you're worrying you're fretting you're bothered you're concerned um, things are not quite right it's there's there's trouble ahead and and so i mean that the, the in music the major minor have always had that those sort of emotive affective um, dimensions and I wanted to get across the idea of education as a process that does not lead eventually towards the shining light that that where, where alas you know everything is revealed to us in its ultimate truth and and um Related to this is the distinction between optimism and hope. You know, optimists think that, you know, the, the 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 wonderful new world is just around the corner. We're nearly there. Just got a few more milestones to get past, and 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 then we'll will arrive. Um, hope doesn't have an end to it. We we can hope for things, but um, but but it, you, you never actually stop. Hoping. It doesn't have a it doesn't have a final ending to it. And I wanted to say that, that education is, is hopeful but not optimistic. And by that I, I meant that that what we are continually, in a sense, groping in the dark. That if you think of I was in one part of the book talking about the practice of research, and that researchers are all the time groping in the dark. They're not quite sure where they're going, they're not sure whether they're getting anywhere really, um, but they're staying with it. Um, Donna Haraway has this phrase about staying with the trouble which I think is a good phrase although I have reservations about some of her work but uh, but there's this idea that, that 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 we just keep keep with it and it's difficult and we're not going to end up at some wonderful place where everything is resolved but we can keep on going and so long as we can keep on going there's hope for future generations and that that's what I wanted to get across with the minor.
0: and I, I, I think it's just beautifully framed uh, like that as well. To 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 a sort of naive reader, that really resonates um, as well. And is that is that what you're meaning by the strong versus weak education? Yes, well? again, that's not my distinction.
1: There? It comes from yeah. um, it comes from the work of Gert Biesta, whose work I. I very much admire. He talks about strong and weak education. And um, the strong education is the sort that most politicians and parents want. You know, when you, if you're a parent and you're sending your kid to university, you want them to come out with a nice degree, uh, really well equipped to get a great job. Uh, So this is a really get the stuff, get the goods and come out being um, as well prepared as you could possibly be to face the world. That's what you know, parents typically want for their children and what politicians think parents want and so on. And, um, and is saying that, no, we should think of education. He, in one of his works, he says we should think of it as a process of disarmament rather than arming ourselves with knowledge so that we can better cope with adversity, which means that we sort of, um, we, we're like inside this suit of armour um, so we don't see anything much or feel anything much because we're covered in, in the armour of our own knowledge, which we use to defend ourselves against the external world. He says it's a process of taking your armour off so that you're actually vulnerable, uh, weak, but it means that you're exposed to things. You actually notice and pay attention to what is out there and say it might be worth paying more attention to this. in order, Rather than saying, I know all about this now, so I don't have to bother with you anymore. you say no, actually, I don't know anything really, and I do need to pay attention and 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 um Marceline calls it poor pedagogy rather than rich rich pedagogy is when you've got lots of information to convey, and you make sure you convey it. Poor pedagogy is when the teacher comes along and says, "I haven't really got anything to teach you, but I've got some things I might show you uh, and 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 you, maybe you know um that will um be revelatory for you
0: so so that's the distinction thank you thanks so much for that and um, so uh, again uh, another sort of uh, modern sort of answer or solution to to some of the challenges in in education again this this again this particular resonates with me because I'm from a healthcare background and, and health and there's lots of sort of interprofessional and interdisciplinary movements uh, to try and um say sort of solve some of the challenges of education but i think i read somewhere you you got some comments about about that as well that you know just because something is interdisciplinary doesn't necessarily um uh, address some of these deep problems of of, of education
1: mm-hmm. Yes, I, I, I mean interdisciplinary. Interdisciplinarity is all the rage at the moment, and it's what our managers are all we're telling us that what we ought to do, and we're all supposed to say how interdisciplinary we're being. And I, I do find this rather annoying, um, because um, I think it's linked to this territorial conception of a discipline that each discipline has its own particular territory to, to defend and then they have to start making alliances with one another in order to get from one territory, territory to the other when what we need to be doing is dissolving this this territorial understanding of what a discipline is and think of disciplines more like um, convergences in lines of conversation, where lots of lines of conversation come together, form a bit of a knot, then you've got something that people will call a, a discipline. And I, I find it annoying because... Because I don't think there's been any time, at least with the humanities and social sciences, which is my area, I, I, I don't think there's been ever any time when scholars have not picked up whatever strands of conversation look interesting and pertinent at the time for the work they're doing. And this idea that you know we we've been living in disciplinary silos... Is is a myth, I think, that's perpetrated by managers who tell us um, who 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 want to take it upon themselves to build bridges. Theirs is a divide and rule strategy, basically. And to divide and rule, you've got to you've got to make the divisions and then pretend you're um, you're, you're you're bridging them. So that's where all the stuff about silos comes from. It doesn't correspond to the reality of scholarship, I don't think, and never has done. But there's one other issue about interdisciplinarity and that is that um that it the, the implication tends to be always that these are academic disciplines and 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 it's a way in which people from different disciplines gang up together to exclude everybody else um and and we we have our own particular troubles with this in anthropology because we want to think for example of a of a of a, a people who practice a particular craft as having a discipline, or people who who pursue a particular way of life as having a discipline, you know, a body of knowledge and practice which they've learned and inherited and and, and will pass on to their children. If we if we think of a discipline like that, then there's absolutely no reason why interdisciplinarity should be linked, should be confined mm. um, to the academy, but so often it is.
0: Mm. Mm. Um, now. Tim, just as we're drawing towards the back end of, of our of our chat here, um, sort of to to bring it round to the to the sort of take home messages really, and and um, two two things. One, how do you see that some of your uh, th- these incredible ideas could play out in universes as they are, um, mm. and then. And then I'll ask my second question to finish off. Okay. As, as, well, as well, the as well. first
1: one is, is is about the future of the universities. And yeah. I um, it, I mean, what I'm putting forward would would require qu- quite a major shift in, uh, in the way universities operate, but not such a major shift if you look at what's actually going on in the coalface. I mean, yeah. There are all sorts of interesting and experimental things going on. Uh, at the coalface with 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 teachers and students working collaboratively, um, which offer the seeds of of, of future development. But my but, but thinking on an institutional level, my feeling is that the you know the, the neoliberal university of this moment is clearly not sustainable. Um, they're already collapsing um, they're about or they're about to collapse because they're based on unsustainable, um, an unsustainable financial model. So the question then is, do we simply wait for them all to collapse, scratch our heads and wonder, well, what do we do now? Or do we start thinking already now about what the shape of the university of the future should be? And obviously, I think the latter. I think we should should be putting our heads together. You know, even if our institutional managers are too thick to understand that there's a problem, uh, everybody Working in universities, in 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 a, as as an educator, knows, you know, that the system is bust, and and so we instead of producing endless critiques of neoliberal capitalism and the terrible things it's doing to everybody, um, we we know those. We, we already we don't need more critiques. We already know where the problem is. The really hard work and difficult work is to think creatively about what a future university could be, because we need universities. We can't be without them. They perform functions that no other institution does. So my feeling is we we have to have universities. So we must be thinking now about the principles, the fundamental principles upon which such institutions would operate. And, And that was really behind all of this it was behind a movement I was leading in my own university at the same time as writing the book um, about the manifesto we wrote as part of that reclaiming movement. And, and other similar things are going on in other universities. And uh, it's just a matter of building up enough momentum for this to become a real agent for, 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 for change.
0: And, uh, and there's the answer to my second question which is all about what you, your views on the, fu- the on the future of higher, higher education uh given this crisis point that we we seem to be mm. being so um uh, thank you for that um and so just to finish off now tim if that's okay and this is to finish bring it back to more of a light-hearted tone to finish off and a musical tone if if you so wish but um I do ask everyone if they'd like to mention any sort of creative or musical piece that, that sort of reflects them and speaks to them as an educator or has or is, is got a sort of punk element to it where it sort of shakes the world a little bit. And you're a cellist yourself, so I don't, I don't know if you, if you want to mention anything or... <laughs> I'm, yes.
1: a, I'm a very classical cellist, <laughs> um, very staid in that way, that I, the, um, rather than doing crazy things, on the whole, uh, but the key concept that I've been working with recently, um, and which does have a musical resonance, is the concept of correspondence. By mean by by which I mean, voices going along together and answering to one another as they go, and and the. Uh, lines of musical counterpoint fit that definition very well and if you think of a of a a choral piece or a fugue or a string quartet um, if I think of the cello part in a string quartet there am I following a particular melodic line on the cello which is continually uh, evolving but at the same time responding to the lines of the viola and the two uh, violins so that I find that and string quartet model in that case very good for thinking about how we should understand future relations of education and learning and and um, during lockdown in, in 2020 I brought out a little book which is simply called correspondences it's published by polity press which is a collection of of 29 really short, Essays, thought pieces that I wrote for fun, often in response to works of art or exhibitions, or I've been asked to write something for the artist's book or catalogue, and I assembled, assembled them all together. And I found this process of, of, of um, responding to an artwork, not writing about the artwork, but responding to it, tremendously liberating. I could forget about all this academic thing of having to have an argument and to back it up with bibliographic references. I could just, I could just allow my mind to 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 wander, inspired by some work that I'd never encountered before, by an artist or whatever it might be. And um, I found that liberating. And um, I hope everybody will read the book. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, thank you very much. I am going to put the link to the book and a lot of your other work in the in the podcast detail, and I'll put the links to some of the YouTube videos of of, of some of your lectures um, on I on do. there as well, and allow people that opportunity now to explore your uh, the world of uh, anthropology and and the work you've done as well. But thank you so much for your time on our higher education podcast, and it was just wonderful to hear of your your um, Uh, your thoughts about, about what education is, was, should be. So, Tim, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed it very much.